You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello there and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I am talking to Glenn Moore. He is absolutely brilliant and a complete basket case, by which I mean his brilliance is driven by this sort of deep semi-pathological, and I'm putting the word semi there because I don't truly understand the meaning of the word pathological, but his drive, as you will discover, is to make sure that he is funny enough that certain bad things, or specifically a certain bad thing, doesn't happen absolute basket case but we're very grateful for this complex psychological cross that he's fashioned for himself to bear because it means that we get to enjoy genuinely some of the most packed i mean talk about gag rate every beat and breath of his last few edinburgh shows and he's he's very much his style is just designed to drive it forwards talk about does it make the boat go faster harriet beveridge et al um but it, it's absolutely, it's just this astonishing onslaught of joke, 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 joke. And in his last show in particular, Glenn has managed to fashion that into a really coherent narrative about his life. Or is it? We will find out. There are extras available from this episode uh, in the usual place. And as you will know, the usual place. Did you like that where I, I stalled for four seconds while I brought up the uh, the blurb? Here's what's in the extras. Um, we are, if you're in the Insiders Club, which you can join at uh, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, we get 20 minutes of extras, including how many notes Glenn has on his note-taking app in the run-up to writing his Edinburgh show, which, and here's a clue, it's over a thousand. We're going to talk about paradigm shifts in comedy, and he very kindly shares with us some of his recent bad ideas. Also, there's an extremely embarrassing bit where I am forced into an admission that shames me, and uh, I may have got cold feet by the time you hear it, but there's a good chance you'll get to hear that bit. Apologies to everybody. Now, we're going to get stuck into this, revisiting his earlier shows, speculating as to what drives him to apply a much sterner standard to himself than anyone else, and find out what it means to him that Mock the Week has concluded. But I tell you something that hasn't concluded, nice link, it's Glenn's tour. He is on tour at the moment, he's all over the country, and uh, that continues until February. Is that fair? Does it continue until February, or does it stop over Christmas and then restart in February. I don't know, but you can find out at glenmorecomedy.com slash live. So do that because he's on tour and the show is a hoot. Here's Glenn. Let me begin, Mr. Glenn Moore, by yes. thanking you for... Um, I recently had Jordan Gray on the show, and Jordan sent me an incredible bullet-pointed list of all the research that I should do. At, not at my request, but like it was an incredibly... Uh, she was very uh, overly helpful. You went one better and sent me a recording of your recent show, which I sadly missed at this year's Edinburgh Festival. Um, uh, but you sent it to me with an overdubbed director's commentary pointing out the visual jokes. Yes. No one's just, ever done that. I just thought, because it was quite a visual show and it's it's not a mime show or anything like that but because there are sort of quite a few sort of uh, very visual elements to it I thought uh, I, it would be best I'd be remiss to, to so much of it wouldn't make sense so I thought it'd be best to do that 
from these I can deduce uh, from that action I feel like I deduce three things yeah. which are that you are uh, very proud of your stuff and you want all of it to be uh, clear um, right understandably so um, you can be asked to do it you had a work ethic you didn't think <laughs> about doing it and then not get around to it and three I wondered if there is also an element by which you are eager to please uh, yeah I, do you know what I think the, the latter two Absolutely correct. And I think the first one is driven by a fear of being like, well, he'll hate me if I do a joke that he I can't see. see. That's and he'll one be and like, three are collectively, yeah, this gotcha. bastard has strung me along with a joke that I can't see. And that, was, that yes, was what that was, yeah. But I suspect no one else would think that. They, do you know what I mean? That, I'm not to say that no comics uh, have social anxiety at mm. all, but that is a particular flavour of social anxiety of like, oh, God. Stu might not be able to understand a few of the jokes. Like, yeah, exactly. And would, and, uh, he might be mad. And again, <laughs> actually, can I take this one step further and and, and actually apologise for that? And if any of the director's commentary came across as uh, as as, as patronising, it, it was absolutely not what I intended at all. I'm terribly, and, I'm terribly sorry to exist. <laughs> and you know, and you know what? I was driving back from Hull this morning and kicking myself, being like, "Oh, I didn't. Oh, God, there's that. Jo- I didn't do a director's commentary for that joke." Um, yeah. And I just realised there was a couple I missed. So, uh, apologies. Nonetheless, I feel like we've. We, the only other thing we need to do to set you up, we set you up as a man. Now <laughs> we kind of get where you're And, your, and your a very weak one at that. <laughs> a weak man. Um, but uh, for people who are less familiar with your work, your the show that you sent me and your oeuvre in general, the thing that you do, is the most. It's. I struggle to think of anyone, and I've spoken to a lot of comics and seen a lot of comedy. I don't think I can think of anyone that matches you for gag rate. Can you think of anyone that matches you for gag rate? Uh, Yeah, but I don't want to promote them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There are other one-liner guys out there. And this is, you know, one-liner guys is not to... um, uh, certainly not to gender it, but uh, not to demean you or them. But in terms of, like, they're a joke machine comedians, but you're a joke machine where it's almost like every time you draw breath, it's a feed line. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I mean, if, if, if you were at my tour show last night, you'd know that there were lengthy gaps, very lengthy <laughs> gaps, where I was questioning whether I'd ever written a joke at all in my life. Um, really? Uh, yeah. Really? Th- are you really? Are you now? But that's I, the I, level I of panic that- I have. That's the level of panic I have if a gig's not going my way necessarily. Then I start to okay. think, like, where's the next? But that, and that's, that's what made me write loads and loads of jokes in the first place was, um, was dying as an open spot at Camden Highlight in 2013. And um, I really felt like I'd let down Julia Chamberlain because she'd booked me. Having done Say You yeah. Think You're Funny the year before, sure, I'd and moved down to London. And she has this wonderful kind went, of uh, presence. And, and she's you know, so, you want she's to so her, supportive. Yeah. And she went, well, do you want to do an, uh, you know, a, a middle 10 here? And I was like, oh, I'd, I'd love to. And um, my stuff at the time wasn't as sort of, I, I, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't as tight, I don't think. And um, I, I remember really panicking about four or five minutes into the set sort of thinking I, I don't think I've got any joke I don't think I've got anything I don't know when I'm just waiting for when the next joke is and I don't think I've got any there's things that have the rhythm of jokes and they sound like jokes but they haven't actually got punchlines and I really start to sort of worry about that and so she she kindly rebooked me and I, I completely rewrote my stuff over the space of like three months and made sure that like right you was only ever a few seconds away from a punchline every single sentence was either a punchline or directly informing the setup for the next punchline or the setup and um and it was yeah that was all purely because of one evening where i died so it does that does that um kind of uh, uh resonate with the one of the first points i made regarding the director's commentary which mm. is that your style is born of being eager not to be told off <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, honestly <laughs> 
I'm so scared of being in in, tr- in trouble. <laughs> like that's that's like I, I'm and I haven't really been told off as an adult for years. Uh, nor I can't really remember last time I was ever really in trouble. Um, but that that's yeah, that, that's that's where it comes from. It's it's uh, it, it's it's a worry that the audience would suddenly become a room full of the most unreasonable people you'd ever meet. Who, yeah. if you go longer than a few seconds without a joke, they go, "Oh, for God's sake!" And do they get you really have angry. A, and, do you? And, uh, yeah. Go on, sorry. Well, I was going to say, and, but and and, and but ultimately, I've, uh, what what you then do is you build a, a rod for your own back because if you, you know if you if you set a precedent in which right you're only going a few seconds without a punchline, you know you're constantly just sort of it, it, it's just punchline after punchline, then that makes any silence longer than fifteen seconds cataclysmically awkward. And that, that's so what, you haven't so, solved the problem. You've just papered over the problem so well that you condemned yourself to forever having to paper over the problem. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I've made sure that in this show and in the last show, I had deliberate moments where the audience are forced to sit in silence for a long time because of a really lengthy setup. And it is to highlight the fact of... It's almost me sort of saying to the audience... Do you remember when there were loads of jokes earlier? Wasn't that nice? So can we just be a bit grateful, please? (laughs) (laughs) Um, How many... Have you counted how many punchlines there are in your show? You strike me as someone that might have. I used to. And my director and my agent said please don't please stop doing that because it's not a good thing and I don't, I don't think it is a good thing it's good to have a vague idea um a vague gist but uh the problem was I'd always see it as well each year statistically I needed to sort of improve on the last one and I was worried that even if I came with a new show with like even two punchlines fewer that a review would be like uh, it didn't really feel as dense as the last one you know oh um, god this anxiety is crippling Glenn. sorry this I'm is so a- sorry Stu I, I want you to know that I'm 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 living quite happily with it it's okay like, I'm not like um I don't uh, I, I often people in my position go on to lead long and healthy lives um and I, <laughs> I, I um it's no it was so basically I um so I remember my first show was there's definitely more than 300. Jokes doesn't feel like the right word. I'd say almost sort of no. like laugh lines, you know, sort mm-hmm. of like that includes all the toppers and stuff like that. A joke that might come in the setup. There was, a, I think I tried to hit the 300 mark in my first show. And, then and that would have been a 60 minute show, which yes. is five jokes a minute. Yes. Five laugh lines a minute. Five laugh lines, yes. Um, yeah. and, uh, and then I made sure that I think the second show was like 305. The third show was 310. And so this year I did, I deliberately didn't count, but I'm aware that this... I think this one must have more. But, but, but the reason I didn't count is because I used to just... Obviously, it's going to make me sound even worse. Uh, I, I, I used to, like... D- during those sort of June and July previews where you're just sort of going all over the country and you're just trying out your show in, in sort of completely different environments and stuff like that, um, that I'd always listen back to the recording on the train home or on the drive home. And if I, if I was on the train home, I'd sit there with the stopwatch app open and I'd be timing the distance between the jokes and being sort of like, right, that one... That's 25 seconds. They must have fucking hated me at that point. So I'd, I'd then go, right, I need to make sure there's a joke in there or I need to sort of trim down that setup. Um... But I think what happens is I was then just trying to fit any joke into those positions and you end up sort of muddying the flow of the show. You're just putting in an arbitrary joke that you don't really like. It's just you just sort of checking a list of sort of going, great, I've got put a joke there, that counts. Um, and so this, this show, the one I'm touring at the moment, is the one I feel happiest with in terms of like well this feels the most organically written and every joke is there for a reason and it's not there because I'm scared of the audience or scared that I've gone too long without a a joke or anything like that I was just like no every joke is there for is there for a reason and if a joke has not been good enough then it's gone um whereas previously I think I was happy to keep in jokes that didn't really work as 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 well as the others but I was like but it counts as a joke and it, it works well in that section and I can't bear the idea of saying goodbye to it 
And you are rewarded for this attention to detail by having had, in the most recent instance, a storming Edinburgh Festival, right? Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, it was nice. I, 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 I yeah. I, I, I never really know how to adjudicate these sort of things, so it's difficult to, <laughs> it's difficult to say. I was happy, uh, yeah, I'm happy, I was happy with how it went. I think, yeah. You think? Yeah, I don't know, I, yeah. I th- it's really weird, I, I, like, it's, I, I try not to sort of overthink it, because I've obviously, as is probably apparent, have a habit of overthinking these sort of things. So, um, I, uh, I, I sort of think, well, can you, you know, if, if, yes, this review's nice, but then it, it comes out on a day where, you know, the audience were particularly iffy that day, and you sort of had a bad one, you sort of go, well, can I, can I really say the show was alright when I, when I've literally just performed it quite badly now, you know? Um, but it's, now that the fringe was, the time of us talking is, you know, sort of uh, j- just under a month ago. Um, I, I, I'm sort of looking back at it with like an increasing sense of of, of pride and and uh, and 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 happiness about it. One that I can't, I'm incapable of feeling while I'm there. Uh, I'm a bag of nerves at the Edinburgh Fringe every single day, all day, all day, every day, um, from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, and that feeling does not subside until uh, I'm I'm on the train home. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear it. I no, mean, it makes, I'm fine. It makes I'm sense. Fine. I get it. I yeah. get you as a person. I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That 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 reads like I yeah. can well believe it. But um, what a shame. Have you have oh, you tried? No. Oh no, no what I didn't. A shame want... for you. No, no, no. I don't mean. I'm you know. I'm not feeling. No, it's sorry just. For it's you. just. I just, I, just, I just didn't know. I I didn't know. I needed pity. Um, I think. <laughs> Gosh, so when, well, let's go back to the uh, beginning of you becoming this type of comedian, because mm-hmm. you are a very, like, you know, like, joke-driven comics mm. are the exception, not the norm. I think that's fair. Okay. Um, and amongst joke-driven comics, you're very joke and you're very driven, <laughs> right? right? So let's talk about those kind of, in what was that forged? You've got to, I mean, I, I don't know that we can take anything you said in your show at face value, anything, because there's so many things which appear to be, you know, you're protesting too much. They're like, and this I do mean, you know, and then it turns Mm. out to be a joke. And so there are things in there that I guess are true. There's story elements I guess are true. There's a reveal aspect to it, which I don't want to spoil and go into. But um, but, um, you mention in the show, uh, you allude no you directly state in the show that you did a a sort of a quasi gig as a child whereby everyone looked at you at an event and you said something funny or failed to say something funny enough or what have you is there any truth in that or like what is your relationship to to comedy as a starter the the worst jokes in the show the weakest ones the ones where it's noticeably like that doesn't sound like a very me joke those are the true ones um because it's the only way i could fit them in the show i i i think that it's through sort of being told by people that if you are going to try and hold an audience's attention for an hour and you are going to get them to listen to you and stuff like that that you do sort of i i've been told by sort of numerous comics over the years that you, you do sort of owe them a bit of reality to some extent otherwise it, it makes the show a bit like it, it does mean you sort of you do you do create an increasing gap with your audience and you do sort of need to let them in sort of to some extent and i was told that the sort of bits of my show that people had sort of enjoyed uh in the past that like what my girlfriend said to me is that the bits she sort of most enjoyed were the bits where if something went wrong in the show and i'd sort of slip out of character as it were and and be myself sort of in front of the audience and so vo- those were the elements that i thought oh, right i need to sort of incorporate what what those sort of are so like um i think the and I tried to make them. I tried to make it so that the least plausible thing 
was the true thing. So, for instance, so well, um, just like just as to as to tickle yourself, really, like you wanted kind to do of, that, yeah, just a fun and, but, thing. but to try and make it clear to the audience this is true. So, I'd always try and introduce an element of proof to the audience and be like, "See, this was the real bit." So, in 2018, it was about um, uh, applying for the first civilian mission to Mars. Um, and the framework of the show was about, well, how would I plan for it, basically? You know, and what my what, looking at the reasons as to why I applied for the civilian mission to Mars. And it was revealed that that was something I did um, at a very low period in my life, uh, about a decade ago, <laughs> that I thought, oh, some, this would be like a bit of an escape, I guess. So I had applied for a civilian mission to Mars. And then the following years was all about working at a, m- a fictional radio station as a newsreader. And it all seemed sort of very sort of uh, nonsense and ridiculous. But then at the end was sort of, there was proof that I used to have to be the newsreader for Nigel Farage and Katie Hopkins at LBC, which used to be my job. I, I, again, I, I, hopefully it goes without saying, but um, I, I, it was not my decision to work for those people. Um, and uh, rarely was I even in the same room as them, but I was a freelance newsreader, which means they put you on the shifts, which no one else wants to do, be gotcha. it reading the news at three in the morning or reading the news for uh, Katie Hopkins, uh, which is which is sort of what I had to do. So, um, yes, yeah, so it was. I always try to make it like amongst the most implausible bits of a show are usually the sort of true bits. Okay, okay. So going back to your origins as a comic... How yes. did you how did you get into it? What's the first what's the first joke you remember? First joke I remember um I'm going to have to think about this while we while, while I talk about okay. first gigs and stuff like that. So um I I I got started at uh uni by accident when um there was uh my uni had like a student comedy festival um which would be put on by the university sort of improv group and uh the and it was it was run like a proper music festival it was it was great and you had the sort of headline acts they got like the cambridge footlights to sort of they were like the big saturday night headliners you know yeah. and on like the friday night you had the lead tea lights on the sunday you had like the bristol reunions uh, this was at the university of sheffield by the way so and um they had a they, and they had a number of sort of like um uh, open mic gigs and they had stand-up acts and stuff like that they they uh they, they arranged it with Chortle to have the Chortle Student Comedy Awards one of the first rounds there gotcha. um which is where Joe Lysett won that okay. during that festival and so when went on to you know uh, win win the award and become Joe Lysett um and uh, during one of the open mic nights the host couldn't make it I think they'd been sort of delayed on the motorway so they sort of because I was helping sort of run the festival um they said, you know, do you want to do, do if, if we give you like five minutes to go backstage and write a few jokes, would you be, do you want to do it? And I was like, okay. And so I sort of like hurriedly sort of tried to think and actually that, that pressure really sort of helped. And so I went out and don't, I don't really remember sort of how the gig, it was only to about 14 people or so. Um, but it was, uh, it, I, I remember sort of really enjoying the experience and I'd, I'd, I'd done loads of sort of acting and stuff like as a kid and when I was at uni was very involved in sort of being in plays and stuff like that um at, but that, that this was just a, a whole completely sort of different thing and then um the following year my friends um entered me into the Chorter Student Comedy Award like basically without me knowing um and so my first actual like stand-up gig was a year later um and is on YouTube and I can't get rid of it um <laughs> but it but I as in I got but it was not I, I got through the first round and then my second gig ever was the semi-finals and then my third gig ever was the final so I but I and I remember talking to acts like during the semi-finals and stuff and they were like where, where were you this weekend and stuff and I was like well just at home what are you talking about? i just had no idea that <laughs> it was something that you were meant to do loads and um so there was yeah there, there were about four or five months between my first few gigs and then after the children's student award i didn't do another gig until the following year when i entered so you think you're funny so i because I, I, I just didn't have a way in i didn't know any other comedians or anything like that i did i just didn't know what you were meant to do so i just applied for competitions and stuff like as and when but um i, ju- I just i genuinely i really firmly hadn't had no idea what i was what i was doing um there first, is something quite there's something quite uh 
exciting about that because you're one of those people who had to invent what it was for yourself because you didn't know what it was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no. There's no. But there's no set curriculum. Everyone's got a sort of a different route in, and you you can do that. You know, there is there are the traditional routes of you know incre- incre- increasingly more traditionally you know a comedy course or stand up competitions and stuff like that, or open mic nights, or if you're based in a city, there's sort of lots of gigs and stuff like that. But um, in Sheffield, certainly, I mean, you've got like the Last Laugh Club chain, but that was definitely for more. That was definitely for established acts. There were maybe a couple of very small alternative nights which rang ran every couple of months. But there wasn't really anything to do regularly, so um, I, I firmly had no no idea what I was doing. And especially when I then moved to London, about two years after my first ever gig, uh, with an aim of just right, I would try and do any temp job I can during the day to make money, and I, I would do any gig I can in the evenings. I really did not know. I really did not know what I was doing at all. Um, so the first joke I ever remember writing was when I was about fifteen or sixteen. And it was like a really long-winded thing about, and I can't right. It's on it's on YouTube because I did it in the Chortle final, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's one that I cannot say now because it's it's deeply creepy to say it as a, a, a um as as just a, a full blown adult. But it was about sort of um uh it, it was it was based on the annoying thing at the time where people used to say this, you know people used to say about going you know going to the going for a bit of pubage, you know, going for a bit of drinkage, a bit of foodage, that sort of thing. And it was just basically saying adj about everything. And so that I was going out in Stevenage, um, you know, to sort of uh, pay off my mortgage. Um, and then I sort of got chatting to, uh, it was like something like, it just doesn't suit me to say at all, uh, chatting to like a, 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 you know, wanted to get chatting to a bit of girlage. Uh, and I got chatting to a, a bit of girlage with some very nice cleavage. This feels awful to say. Um, and then the, the punchline was, um, it, it turns out she was underage. Um, and so again, cannot stress enough 15 when I wrote it please don't hold me to account for that now um but that is the first thing I remember sort of writing but I didn't think that that was I I I used to come up with jokes and stuff quite a lot when I was um a teenager but I didn't trust that they were good jokes because I was like well I'm 17 years old why would they be why would they be good these must have been like these must these must be shit surely um and I I I had that for many years thinking there's no way the jokes are coming up with would possibly ever work in a sort of actual comedy club because I've come up with I'm a civilian who's come up there's no there's no way these could work the the two ways you've articulated that I'm like these must be crap jokes because I'm so young and they must be crap jokes because I'm not a comedian that's mm. quite that's sort of the opposite that a way uh, there's the opposite way to how many comics who have maybe either bigger egos or perhaps less self-doubt would approach it right. I think to an extent we're all you know one really starts doing comedy unless they think you know, very rarely do people get tricked into doing it or it happens by surprise. Those things crop up. But most people think, yes, I could do that. I'm just wondering whether those two reasons, I'm not a comic and I'm only a kid, so these can't be good. Yeah. Was there another element of it where you were like, well, this can't be good because it's me? A hundred percent. Yeah, definitely. And I think the only reason it's, it, I, it feels nice to be able to say what got me into it was other people telling me I should as opposed to the what you know running the risk of sounding delusional by being like everyone thought I should not do comedy and everyone told me not to do it (laughs) and I did it um and so the reason my friends entered me into the competition was not as a cruel prank it was you know it was because they said ultimately it was the only way they knew I was ever going to do it because they knew I wouldn't and they knew I wouldn't want to or I would need that sort of deadline of being like right you're definitely doing this um that i i was worried that it would seem really big-headed if i myself said i've decided i'm going to try and make a room full of people laugh so um i, I th- so it's 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 you not only didn't believe in yourself you also wouldn't dream of wanting anyone to think that you believed in yourself 
Oh, Can we stop? This is horrible. This is, yeah. Um, oh man, this is this is really treat. This is. Uh, I was saying uh, treat, which was a mixture of tragic and bleak. Um, so, um, do you do you just to jump ahead in the timeline? Sure. I want to go back to certain elements of it, but to, to, mm. to jump there's ahead, a lot to unpack. Do you? <laughs> isn't there? Do you accept now that you are a good comedian? Um. Yes, yes, because because I think I've been employed to do it enough. Do you know what I mean? I think if I, it's kind of inescapable, isn't it? If people have given you money to be a comedian, yeah, and after then a while, I, I think the, the turning point for me was probably when people would ask, say, uh, Edinburgh, like, how's your show going, or whatever, and I sort of go, oh, it's a piece of shit, whatever, and it, it was a turning point when people sort of go, no, shut up, stop it, stop it, like, obviously. Obviously not. Like, be you know, like it's ruder to say that than to say it's going fine because you're like we're, yeah. we're both we're, we're both li- we're both lying to each other, aren't we? Um, so when you got to the point at which you wouldn't dream of having people think you'd be so rude as to tell you your show was shit, you finally had to accept it. Yeah, I, and I, I, I've, yeah, I've always tried to be sort of quite measured in how I'd sort of describe it. So I'd never describe it. I, I would never describe a joke of my own as funny. I would only ever sort of say like, oh, it's it it works or it oh that that yeah it was quite effective when that or this is quite this joke's quite effective at this point in the show i'd always i'd always make sure i use quite tepid phrasing to sort of say that as opposed to yeah i was really funny last night because i just think with something that's subjective you can't not come across as a dick in the same way that if you went on a someone said how was your date and you go yeah i was, I was really sexy last night i was really like it, it doesn't work like that so why would sure. it work in this context sure, so I but you want are to. i imagine you are applying a different standard to yourself than to your peers if your friends go oh, i had a belting gig last night you don't think god what a piece of shit no, absolutely not no 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 and I, I i i i am incredibly i think uh punishing to myself in a way that i wouldn't be to any other person you know and i'm very i'm very good at sort of reassuring friends and stuff about their own careers in a way that i wish i could reassure myself about my own life it's just i'm i'm, I'm very good at other people's lives um and, and 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 wish i could sort of apply that logic to myself but i'm 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 fully incapable of doing so do you have any theories as to why you are like this um it's i mean it's definitely like sort of a uh, it, 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 it there's a multitude of things it could be with sort of upbringing in fact you know what we got onto this through you mentioning the the, the childhood gig that I sort yeah. of refer to in my immediate show. So that's true. That's true. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm fine. So it's, it's not a big spoiler for the show that basically when I was uh, five years old, I was a page boy at my aunt and uncle's wedding and um, I inadvertently interrupted one of the speeches by uh, thinking I was basically whispering to my mum. But during a quiet bit of a speech, I actually spoke really loudly, said something really inane and every single person laughed. And I remember it just feeling horrible, a really horrible oh, feeling. I just felt, at you. Yeah, I felt really told off. And it wasn't, it was a very thing. warm and kind atmosphere, but I think I just associated grown-ups with just sort of like well you know that all grown-ups were like something from a roll doll that all that all everyone's mistrunchable basically you know yeah. um so i uh was I, I felt awful you know and um i it, it a couple of people i spoke to including my girlfriend and my director um about the show that i sort of mentioned that sort of instant to them and they were both like that's a hundred percent why you do comedy like that moment you can pinpoint that moment as to that's why you went sort of into comedy to it possibly whether or not it was to make sure that you know when you go on stage and tell jokes it's done on, it's done on your terms you can laugh at you, you that, yeah yeah yes. yeah we're laughing yes. with me because i told you that joke so that was you know um and that that's probably what it is but i think um i don't i, I don't really 
No, it wasn't like I was ever told off for showing off or anything as a as a kid or anything like that. I, 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 um, I don't know. It was a very sort of hardworking childhood, I think. Like really sort of hardworking hard family. Hardworking childhood. Yes, and very oh, hardworking hard family. Family yes. dynamic. But what it meant was you had to be working at all times. Like at all times. Like what did it, your folks do? What did your folks do? Um, so they were... But it was it was so my my dad sort of worked at like a company sort of at fit radiators um and my mum would just sort of move from job to job it was mostly sort of like secretarial stuff a lot of tracing in the 90s when tracing was a thing um so she so and that's sort of what it was but I think they'd um they'd both been sort of screwed over academically um in which like I think at my dad's school, I hope they're okay with me talking about this. I, th- I, I think at my dad's school, there was like a really good school he sort of wanted to apply for. Um, and it sort of like passed the test or something. And I think his teacher filled out the forms wrong, but meant he like specifically did not apply for that school and didn't get into the school he sort of wanted to. Oh, okay. um, and um, and then I think on my mum's side, she was brought up in Australia and I think moved from Australia just before they do their like equivalent of GCSEs. Yeah. And when she got back to England, it was like the year after we've done our GCSEs. So she left school having like never even sat an exam like ever. Okay. And so they'd always say to me and my sister, just sort of like, do, do, you know, just do, do, work in the most traditional way you possibly can. Um, and, and, and really study hard at school. We do not want any of these situations to, to happen to you basically at all. And so we would just, me and my sister were just working all the time. And I've sort of, I've, I've, I, I so like weirdly, even when we were like on a holiday and stuff like that, um, me and my sister would have to do like a few hours every day of like, not a few hours, but just like about an hour or so a day at least of just like, just maths exercises and stuff like that. Even if we didn't, during the summer holidays, like in between syllabuses where like you're not even being set a particular sort of thing. It was just like, that's what we had to do every day. And then you earned, you sort of earned being able to go in the swimming pool after that, that sort of thing. You know, when you're on holiday, it was that, it was that sort of thing. I mean, like, I mean, talking about it in sort of quite an objective way like this makes it sound like it's sort of, it was really strict and horrible. It was like, not at all. It was just like, that was just part of the day, you know? Um, and so, but I think, for me and my sister, we probably intensified that sort of hardworking pressure onto ourselves just just organically and sort of made ourselves sort of care loads about work and stuff like that. And um, I think that's made me sort of like, that, yeah, but I think that, that probably made me sort of work, I, I'd argue probably harder than I needed to in certain sort of situations. But as a result, it was about like what my parents said about about covering covering it covering all bases as best mm-hmm. you can, yeah. so that and I, I think what probably is I'm probably quite sort of self flagellating when it comes to any particular sort of career failing because I go that's because I didn't work hard enough. So this is Glenn Moore. I mean, I just every so often I have a guest on the podcast, and you'll hear this in my voice when it happens about whom I feel kind of avuncular because my I can't help the sort of the thrust of what I'm saying when I hear Glenn talk about being driven, being motored by this compulsion based on the fear that someone might come to his show and think he's let them down by not working hard enough. And you will hear a note in my voice which basically says... Oh, bless you, sweet child. How can we fix you? Because I would much rather that Glenn were less productive and more happy. But listen, it's not... These are very complex psychological issues upon which we're drawing. And uh, I am, uh, as I am at pains to frequently point out, not trained 
I mean, not just in psychology, but in any way. I'm not trained in any way. So, listen, what I mean is I feel very warmly towards Glenn because he's a phenomenal comic and incredibly motivated. What a a work ethic. But also this thing about him uh, not giving himself a break, like gigging five, six times in a day and feeling unable to relax in front of a movie and having to leave. My God, like... I, I hope he's all right. I'm sure he... I, I can tell he's all right. He's clearly all right and thriving and very successful. Um, but it's... You know, I, I suppose what I'm saying is I empathise with that. I have been in a position where I was driving myself very, very hard um, out of compulsion. And it's not good. It's not healthy. And sometimes, and this is true of all comics and probably many walks of life, if you are rewarded by your work uh, or some aspect of your work for your compulsion then um uh, then is that healthy does it solve anything or does it just keep you busy enough to keep the dragon at bay do you know what i mean to you, we talked on this podcast before i've talked to you about that notion that you're satisfying the beast oh if i get enough done and i've i felt this today constantly but today specifically if if i haven't done enough of x then i won't satisfy the thing in me i mean this is we're getting into some pretty Brett Goldstein territory here. But my point is that uh, I feel very warmly towards Glenn and I want him to be OK. And we will find out how OK he is in the second half of this interview. Now, uh, we are going to talk about paradigm shifts in comedy and some of Glenn's recent bad ideas in the 20 minutes of extra stuff that you can access should you deign to be in the Insiders Club for a £2 a month minimum donation or as much as you like. If you are not currently doing that, feel very free. In fact, Feel compelled lest bad things should happen. Let's not make too much of a meal of that. Come to comedianscomedian.com. I've always said go to, but come to is more welcoming, isn't it? Is it? Come to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, brackets the subject being where I currently am, somehow. Uh, Come here uh, for ad-free episodes, extra content from every show that has it, and uh, all of that. And, of course, before we go back in, just a reminder, you can go to glenmorecomedy.com live to find out about Glenn's tour. He is... Where by the time this comes out, you might just be able to scrape him at the Brighton Comedia on the 22nd of October, but then he's going to be at the Spa Centre in Leamington Spa. I know it well. Um, He's going to Bradford, Sheffield, Nottingham, Bristol, Swindon, Reading, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Wickham, York, Leeds, Chorley uh, until the end of November, and then a couple of months off, and then from February, he's at Brighton, Aldershot, Bridgewater, Great Torrington, Exeter, Liverpool, New Milton, Redhill, Belfast, and then London. He's finishing up with a week at the Soho Theatre in London, 20th of February to the 25th. So go and see him. You can follow him on Twitter at the News at Glen, two ends, and you can follow him on Instagram at Glen Roger Moore. Apparently his real middle name, but you just can't trust a joke smith. Now, let's get back to this episode with Glen. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. How do you feel about having that work ethic kind of imprinted on you? 
How do you feel about it? Are you like, oh, I've got a superpower here because I work hard? Or do you bitterly resent it because you can never relax? I don't bitterly resent it. I think at times I wish I, I, wish I didn't have it. Um, and uh, it makes it, which probably sounds really, uh, I, I, I don't know if that sounds strange to hear because you sort of think, well, surely you can just decide not to, not, not to feel like that. Um, but Oh yeah, um, oh yeah, this, this podcast and my no, own no, explorations but no, 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 of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm famously, a, I'm, you're famously cavalier about those sort of things. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's a fun tease because no, that, I, is, that is a thing that so many people yeah, do. They just of, decide not to feel stuff. And of look course, and, and I think what it then transferred to, and even in situations where it's like, I know that, if I, you know, if if there's something that hasn't happened in my life that I really want to happen, uh, let's say let's say it's career based, uh, and I know, and I know for a fact there's nothing I could have done about it, I will still almost look at it from an outsider's perspective, from a very antagonistic outsider's perspective, who doesn't understand the ins and outs and workings of the whole situation and what's gone on who would still be angry and sort of go, yeah, but I think, yeah, but from an outsider's perspective, it would look like I didn't work hard enough to get it. In the same way that, you know, if you, you, you when you first start doing comedy and you sort of go to see your family at Christmas or whatever, and they sort of go, why aren't you on this? Why aren't you on that? You know, that's a relative of a habit of doing that. Not, not in as, uh, not interrogating like that, but people have, you know, sort of ask you questions like that. I'd, I'd sort of picture it being asked to me, a, a, a Christmas gathering sort of almost a sort of like well why haven't you done this why haven't you achieved that sort of thing um, so I think to, to that extent it's um, it's 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 a bad thing but at the same time um, it, again in that sort of classic thing you you do get asked as a comedian of you know if would you would your 18 year old self or when you first started comedy would you would you be happy if you could look into the future and see where you are now but I'm sure 18 year old me would 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 be happy but uh, and so that's um uh, I, I sort of, sorry, I've talked myself into a corner here. I can't remember how the sentence began. It was about whether you, um, how you feel about your work ethic. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah. So I think, um, so I think that eighteen-year-old me would be happy that that work ethic would inform how I work. Um, you know, and would be sort of grateful because I, I do firmly believe that if I, if I, if I, uh, if I worked even one percent less hard, that I would fully be out of a job. Yes. Yes. God. Okay. But lockdown was really helpful for that, for me to, in a therapeutic way, to to make me just not care about that sort of stuff anymore. So when my attitude has, I'd say my attitude has completely changed. It, it has obviously it started to rebuild sort of post lockdown and go back into that sort of hard working ethic and stuff like that. But um, I think um, uh, it was it was a sort of slippery slope sort of pre Edinburgh with regards to. I was filling every spare second I could with with just trying to work, and I was I was working very hard. I wasn't working in a smart capacity at all. It was just like if if I'd bumped into Sisyphus and he'd been like, "Do you want to help me push a boulder up a hill?" I'd been like, "Yep, yeah, councils work. Yep, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it." You know, okay. um, and uh, and so I think um, the the moment that I, I I felt I felt embarrassed at the time, but I'm, I'm now sort of able to sort of look back on and be like, "Oh, in many ways, thank thank God my work got cancelled for quite a while." Um, was that a couple of weeks before? lockdown i think i had um i think it was so it was like 99 clubs so on like a weekend where they they book you in for like literally like five gigs on a friday night around leicester square and you just you're just running from one gig to the other and i think i had something like four or five gigs that evening and i'd i'd been, I'd been working on absolute radio that morning and i think i was maybe filming something on a saturday morning and so i i, I really couldn't have been doing much, much more sort of that day and so at the end of that fifth gig as a really cathartic thing, I was like, well, I'm going to go to the cinema is what I'm going to do. And um, I, I watched 1917, which isn't re- not really a wind-down film. Um, <laughs> but I think I got about 10 minutes into the film 
I was at the cinema in Soho and I got about 10 minutes into the film and I started really, I think I was probably having a panic attack, but I was really uh, panicking about thinking, what the fuck am I doing? I'm not work, like, I'm, I'm being lazy. This is fucking, what the fuck am I doing in my life? It was like 11 p.m. on a Friday. Um, and so I like left the cinema like 10 minutes in and got on the tube and immediately like, started to try and do just, just admin on the tube, just like trying to do sort of any work. And um, I mean, lockdown happened a couple of weeks later and I think just having everything just taken away just suddenly made me sort of go, oh, this is completely, it's completely made me reassess. And Obviously, uh, I, I do wish lockdown had not happened or any of the situations about it with regards to COVID. But um, uh, certainly uh, just being sat around the flat all day just felt like a sort of summer holidays that I'd never had as a teenager and was just and was just mucking about without that guilt or anything like that. And that was really good in terms of helping me sort of reassess things. So I, so coming out of lockdown and sort of going into, say, this year's Edinburgh Fringe and this year's tour, I certainly approached like writing a show with a much healthier attitude and have certainly sort of felt that like if I've done enough work during the week and I've done enough gigs during the week, I shouldn't feel guilty about the fact that I'm not working on a Saturday night or anything like that. But actually I can have a Saturday night in or see friends on a Saturday and not feel like, oh, this is a career ruiner by going to this friend's party. God. Wow! Stop saying no, that no, in that no. intonation, I mean, It's just the sentence. The sentence: a career ruiner. This go- going to this friend's party is a career ruiner. Fortunately, I don't think that anymore. That's great. But, I no, mean, I'm glad but, that you it, don't but, think that anymore. Well, I think what helped me sort of reassess was by, by going to parties and stuff and chatting to friends. I ended up coming out with a hell of a lot more material just from making having conversations with people, as opposed to being in the car on my own, going to Lincoln on a Friday. You know, it was just yes. it was it was so much better for that. I think my my show this year was sort of better as a, as a result from the fact that so much of it came about from being sociable, like seeing friends. Yes. Not that I was antisocial or anything like that. Um, yes, if you take your, from if, it. if one takes their work ethic and kind of screws it up tight and sits in a room intending to make art yeah. <laughs> with no contact with the outside world, well, yeah, it, whilst going bananas and berating themselves that they're not working hard enough, dare they take a two minute break? That doesn't yeah, feel I've, like I've, a sustainable way of living. No, life. exactly. And I've never been able to be one of those people who can. I've always envied any comedian, any artist who goes, I, I really want to find a cafe to write in on Wednesday. I'm going to go to a cafe, sit down all day, and we're going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to write all day. Because um, I've never, I, I, if I sit in a cafe, I just can't, I'll, I'll write, but it will be really by numbers stuff. It will be really mm. generic stuff. It won't, none of it will be good. Um, whereas any of the material that's ever been in my shows or any, anything I've ever done in clubs or anything like that has 100% come about from me either talking to people um, or me just being around people or me just, just dreaming it you know it will just fully just come to me when I'm asleep or when I'm out and about walking and that's the only way it comes about I can't I can't force myself to write sit down and work so actually I was was no I can't believe that what do you mean well like you come across as someone who sits down and does an eight hour you put in a shift you're like I'm now going to come up with what's that idiom or you seem like a kind of Dimitri Martin type who likes to sit on an aeroplane looking through um, a dictionary for random words and writing (laughs) jokes about them but I think he it, it it would make sense for him to because his stuff feels very mathematical. So it feels like he solves jokes. In yes. a similar, like, for instance, my, my, my girlfriend Katie works on loads of topical shows and writes on stuff like Have I Got News For You and the News Quiz and stuff like that. And she's able to solve jokes in a way that I can't. She, if presented with a topical, if presented with a headline, she just goes, this is the main bit of this headline. This is the main bit of this headline. Here's, there's always a joke. Here's, here's what the joke is. And she solves it like a puzzle. This plus this equals this. And they, it blows my mind in a way that I can't... I, I, that's never been how I've sort of worked. It's either It will either fully come to me, like fully written in my head, like someone's whispered it to me, or, uh, or just not at all. No. Fully written. 
Like, I've had jokes where they've fallen into my head and I've gone, oh, I'll, I'll just say that. That's great. Yeah, kind but of. But a lot I'd of the say time the, it's... So it's do you, well, do you know... Um, so for the beginning of my show, the walking in through the... You know, I won't spoil it. But that was... Um, I was backstage at MacFest in May this year, sort of ready to go on. And then it was literally like as they were... As the door stuff were like, are you ready to go on? It was like someone had just gone, hey, Glenn, 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 and just whispered like two minutes of material into my head. And I was just trying to, I was scrambling for my phone, trying to write down all the jokes because it was like, yeah, here's this joke, then the top is this, and then the callback's this, and then this is how you introduce it later. And it was like someone had fully whispered it to me. And to, to the extent that I then tried it out two minutes later on stage, um, but then immediately afterwards was like, I probably should have Googled that first to make sure I hadn't just stolen that. Like, it wasn't just me replaying a Michael McIntyre so routine in my head because it was... Yes. It was just fully written. And so that's kind of how it was. I, I can. So, so when it comes to like writing on something topical or preparing for a topical show and you think, right, this new story is going to come up, I can definitely apply a different sort of joke writing style to it and sort of go, right, let's have a think about this and let's let's write the jokes. But I've never been able to sort of sit in a cafe and go, I think I'd like to write. Um, I, th- I think I'd like to write about uh, about castles. I'm going to write about castles today. I've, I've never, never been able to. When it comes to the bits of tweaking that you do do to the ideas, mm. what are your like? Do you have any? Do you have like um, a basic framework for how a joke works or how a Glenn Moore joke works? Do you have like like I, I want to ask you more than more than most people? Like, what's the toolkit for when you go? There's something in this. Like with one of those examples with pharaohs. Yeah. Do you have an idea of like? Or you said castles. I'll sit down and I'll think. Oh no! Sorry, you said that you never do that. You never sit down and go. Hmm, no, I've been un- unable to. But I, I, I do sometimes think I, I would like a routine about. This. So, for instance, I decided a couple of years ago for my next show I wanted to do a routine about lifeguards. I thought there's something. There's got to be something interesting about lifeguards, and I thought about it for ages and ages and ages, and I couldn't really find naturally anything about it. But then I made in this show, I I realised oh I've got because I, I realised after a while I've got I've got a lot of jokes that are about negative traits in someone and I can't make them all about me and I can't make them all about say the girlfriend character in the mm. show so I need a sort of external enemy so I sort of put a few of those jokes about negative traits onto that sort of enemy and then I thought well why don't I make him a lifeguard is that a funny angle to be furious at lifeguards and furious about aspects of their job and then sort of then I realized old jokes about sort of incompetence in a job and stuff like that I then any joke I came up with it was about work-based incompetence i then sort of made sure right that those will go in the lifeguard bit then that, that's what those that's what those will be and that and that that's the categorization process i think yes and because you're turning over or because you're producing you're generating such a volume of potential ideas by mm. regarding everything as a potential idea um then you're able to go oh if i think of any other jokes about inadequacy at work <laughs> you know what i mean it's well that's like, what it would go in yeah 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 because you go, well, that's then a topper. And then that feels like a much richer topper because you go, that was going to be a standalone joke, but now it's been latched onto this other one. And that feels, yeah, uh, that, that's sort of, I think that's generally the sort of way I do it. So the driving of it is in the assemblage and the chunking together and the and the putting things next to other things. Like, which yes. is what most people do with a basic joke, with a one-liner. If you challenge me to write a joke about a pharaoh, I might mm. immediately think, okay, ancient Egypt, a civilization that didn't change for 3,000 years, long chins, is there a combination of the longer the chins, the longer... Do you know what I mean? I might start thinking like yes. that yeah. with, about an individual joke. But you're in a situation where you're assembling a show with 
all of the ideas that you've got in order to go, well, can that one fit here? Nope. Can that one fit? Oh, there's an interesting tension between those two. Do you know? It's almost like you're yeah. doing that. You're doing the equation of it. Kind of. Yeah. And I think it, it, it then makes for a weird experience for anyone who's seen the finished show who perhaps saw like one of the earliest previews will be really confused and be like, you had this bit about your dad being like a incompetent vicar or something about my dad's not a vicar (laughs) but if you had a routine about your dad being an incompetent vicar and then your dad wasn't in the finished show but the stuff you were saying he did incompetently you then said that there's this lifeguard did incompetently and i'm like yeah they just it was just it was an arbitrary way of just moving that joke into the like they're not it's not real sure Um, and that's yeah (laughs) yes and that's that sort of thing is like someone could for example quite innocently accidentally listen to two of your shows at the same time and think (laughs) they were one (laughs) because of that because of that element of it so do you ever want to express more of who you actually are and the truth of your life than your current means of working allows you to do um, I'm, I not, think, I'm not setting that up as if that's a thing you should think or you no, should. No, no, not at all. Nor, nor am I taking it as such. I, 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 I think that it, I don't. I, I'm not sure how well they can coexist. I'm trying to make those two things coexist as best I can. And so I think this show that I'm doing at the moment is definitely the most like. Well, this has the most real life thing. Thematically, it is about a tremendous real life concern that I had about something in my personal life, and that's what it's about thematically. And the jokes are just a. Uh, a way of sort of speaking sort of through that. And I, I think when I speak really honestly or truthfully about a subject, and I, I, I do it sometimes like if I'm, usually if I'm comparing, I find that actually it's quite difficult to shift from the, the onstage persona and the jokes I'm doing to suddenly being like, hey, give a big cheer for your next, you know, I find it's, it's weird slipping into those two sort of things. So I found usually when I sort of compared, I would just not do my usual sort of material and would tell sort of real life stories and stuff from things in my life that just don't really work. They're not, they're not silly enough and they're not dumb enough and they're not bordering on implausible enough to really go into a show. So those are two very different things. I think if ever I did a really sort of real life on a show, it would be a, it would be done in a completely different style. And I'd make sure it had lots of sort of laugh lines as we were describing them earlier, but they wouldn't be in the same style as my joke at the moment because you, it, the, certainly the idea of these upheavals we were sort of talking about, the almost sort of pullback and reveal sort of thing, that doesn't work when you talk with real life stuff. I don't think because you don't have the you don't have the license the audience. to. Well, to exactly, and I think it makes for time, a really yeah. frustrating experience. And that's certainly a pitfall. That's certainly what I fell into in sort of the early days of sort of like certainly in like my first show. It was kind of like an autobiographical show. But then suddenly you'd be like, you were talking sincerely, like a real life story about your granddad. And in this next joke, your granddad can fly. What? What is that? You know, and no, not that, that, was, that was not in the show. That's <laughs> just an, that's the sort of thing that was in the show. Um, and I don't, I don't think those two things can coexist. So I'd have to do it in an almost completely different style if I was talking honestly about myself, I think. That's great. That's a great answer. What criticisms are levelled at you by reviewers and by yourself? Like, you've got such... I mean, it's so dense. It's a show any comic could aspire to. It's so dense. There are so... Man, there are so many laughs in it. There is something for everyone, and it's like a fire hose of something for everyone. Do you know what I mean? Like, you... It's very, very hard to think of anything critical to say about this show. For my... My my own kind of... um, uh, the things I particularly enjoy within comedy are often to do with people revealing the truth about themselves or wrestling with something. And I didn't even care about any of that stuff because I was too busy laughing. I was like, it, I was punch drunk going, stop laughing, you're going to miss one. You know, it's great. It's just right. a superb, superb show. So, oh, thanks. Um, 
So what criticisms can you find in it? Um, I think it's... I, I have had it, it, it's a bit full-on sometimes. <laughs> um, for them and or actually, for you? Well, for them. I mean, oh, and definitely for me. My knees are absolutely destroyed. This is a much more physical show than I'm used to. My, I can't rest on my left elbow at all to any, anymore. That's completely destroyed. And my left, my right knee started to hurt so much during Edinburgh that I couldn't just walk as I would usually. This is like, the, this is like the, the life meter out of Nightmare. Just bits of you just yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. in pursuit and, of the And show. so like the, my, my, my right knee started to hurt. So I, I practically sort of thought I, I, I would... Um, have to, I'd, if ever I stood up, I'd, I'd be limping for at least a couple of minutes afterwards, and then so I started to make sure that it was the left knee that was getting damaged uh, on tour. And now the same thing has started to happen, where I now started limping uh, on my left knee. So that, there's that element that's quite. And um, uh, but no, I think I think for the audience, it can, it can be a bit sort of full on. I I I, I talk far too quickly on stage, um, and I'm really trying hard not to i think I, I i from previous sort of you know from the sort of former occupation as a newsreader i've learned to be able to sort of enunciate at speed so it means everyone is technically getting all the information and the words are being said but if they're not really being digested then then what then what's the use yes um, but for you in order to take on that challenge you would need to accept that you could fit fewer jokes in and that must be a hard thing for you to accept right i just do shorter setups I think that's why. <laughs> I, I just, I think, um, yeah, I think I would. But, but do you know what I, I would what find I learned, a way, Stuart? I would maintain the three hundred uh, plus. What I, what I, le- what I learned, what I learned was that, uh, over the last couple of years is that actually, you know, no audience member is sat there counting. No, no one's counting the number of jokes. Yeah. And actually, if every sentence is a punchline, a setup, or something directly connected to the setup or punchline then all they'll know is everything was a joke. And that's... So if there are fewer, but everything was vital, then there was no, there's no space wasted. So I could probably... I think I could probably afford to and could probably stand to because I've, I've noticed that actually the jokes that went... that always gone down better and the bigger sort of punchlines are ones that by their nature I have to deliver a bit slowly. I had a really slow bit in my 2019 show where I spoke about Dignitas um, for like about 30 or 45 seconds but like tried to sort of convince the audience I was going to talk about it very sincerely about how they operate and what the actual process of dying at Dignitas is. I mean, there was a big silly punchline at the end of it. But um, I would panic so much when doing that bit every single day because I'd be worried that someone in the audience would be like, get on with it, you know, 25 seconds in. But in reality, actually, that would make the punchline go so much better because um, I, was, I was driving back from Excess Malarkey. I'd done, in, in June, I'd done a preview of John Luke Roberts. It was a fabulous, fabulous joke writer. And he was saying that, you know, if there's, if jokes are all about tension and a release of tension, he said that the, the risk is that ultimately, you know, and he wasn't saying it as a criticism of me. We were just sort of, I was just talking about, should I have fewer jokes and should I talk slower? He was like, there needs to be tension to release in the first place. And if you are just saying joke, 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 then it is, it is just relentless. And there does need to be a bit more light and shade. And you do need to have those moments where you have a bit more of a lengthy setup and a bigger punchline sort of at the end of it. Um, so I think that is the, my my main criticism is is that uh, is that I, I I talk too quickly and I, what I usually find is when I relax a bit more usually when I'm on tour I'll be relaxed a lot more I'll say a few of the jokes slower and it will suddenly like a joke that was being missed by the audiences in Edinburgh will suddenly like maybe get an applause break now and I'm like oh for fuck's sake yeah. why was I so nervous in Edinburgh why did I have to say it so quickly I could have said it slower and it makes the joke better can you address that. Do you intend to address that in future Edinburgh shows or are you resigned to the fact that you will always feel like 
a despicable naughty comedian that hasn't done the work <laughs> and is going to let everyone down such that you'll always need to go that fast because of anxiety. I'm like, getting I'm getting better at it. This this show is a lot slower than the other ones. Every joke is very clear and there were sometimes where a joke if I wasn't fully happy with it this time I would cut it from a show and I would never have done that previously I would have just let this joke wallow in its own filth in my set and have been like no the joke is in there forever because it's a joke that connects these two jokes so it needs to be in there so I, I'm, I'm better at that and I'm definitely better at speaking slower or making sure that it, yeah of, of, of making sure of that and I'm just trying not to sort of panic about that which is which is why in this show there was there is a period where I make the audience sit fully in silence and don't say a word for a whole minute and that was just me see, sort of as a challenge to myself to see if I could without just sort of, you know, breaking out in a sweat. Um, so I, ho- I hope I'm improving at it. Um, I don't know if that anxiety will ever go away, but I, I, think, I think I'm getting better at it, I hope. When it comes to the business of comedy and the kind of, I suppose, the marketing of yourself as a stand-up, like, do you have, and I haven't checked, but have you got, like, albums on Spotify and have you released... Uh, you know, specials and stuff like that. No, never. Um, nor have I recorded any. I think I've always sort of wanted to wait until I was at a position where I could sort of go, right, I've got enough material to make what I would be happy with of saying, this is the best off so far. This is the best hour and a half or whatever. And so nothing, you, you haven't released, nothing exists. You haven't recorded any of your previous shows. Those posters I see on the wall behind you. Yes. You don't have recordings of them. Only the audio ones. So you've got you've got most of my back catalogue. You've got three. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start knocking it out. Come to yeah, comedianscomedian.com yeah. slash car boot. <laughs> yeah, put it on 800 pound Gorilla Records. I love it. Um, I uh, so I, I really w- I really would love to, and that is the ambition. Um, I just kind of wanted to find the right moment and also the right avenue. I think with which to sort of release them. So I I really really would because you know I I I usually leave. Um, Edinburgh or finish a show with an overwhelming sense of shame about it and 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 regret um, and uh, and and sort of a, and a real resolve to be like the next show will be better uh, and then usually what happens is a few months later I sort of think what a shame to have felt that way I am really proud of this show um, and that's the way I feel about all of them now um, and so yeah and it, and it makes it easier to sort of think you know to then sort of visit them in the future and I'm, I'm very happy about taking those bits of the shows and doing them on TV in, in smaller spots and stuff like that. I mean, I think the over, certainly my second show, the overwhelming majority of that has now been done on what the week, like the, the nearly the whole show has, has, has been, has been on the show in, in two minute segments, you know, or individual jokes. And do, what does it mean to you that mock the week has ended? Um, it, do you know what it was? I, I, the fact that it got cancelled publicly the day before my fringe run started, or day before everyone's fringe run started, uh, not not to be sort of self centered about it, but um, it it really spurred me on to work hard in Edinburgh, sort of thinking I that is such a big platform to have, and and grateful, very grateful I am that you know I was like well there will be another you know there's one more series still left to go after Edinburgh, I I, I this this will make me work hard on the show and really perform it to the best of my ability, knowing that. This thing that not that I sort of relied on or, or, or sort of was resting on my laurels with or getting complacent with, but I was like, this this is this sort of wonderful opportunity that I've had for the past few years isn't going to be there anymore. I need to find something else and something new. So it was definitely a good thing in terms of, of focusing me. Um, I'm very sad it's not going to be on after, but at the same time, as as everyone else involved in the show is hopeful and kind of almost like got a sense of being presumptuous about like it will surely 
resurface somewhere else. It's very diplomatically put. <laughs> very good. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm dearly going to miss it. I can't wait to do my last few episodes on it. And uh, yeah, I, I, and I'm going to miss it so much. Because it was the first proper like TV thing I ever got to do. And they really took a chance on me because I, I wasn't, you know, sort of, I hadn't really been going that long at all. Um, and it was, I, I'm, I'm so, so grateful to them. Are your favourite joke of your own material, your favourite and the one of which you are most proud, are they the same joke? Oh. Um, that's really... And because we're speaking of, we're talking of over a thousand jokes, feel yeah. free to just take amongst your most favourite and amongst the ones you're most proud of. Like, I don't, okay. you know, it's a big thing to think back over that many. But if you think of one that you really love, is that a different category to... One yeah, they are. Actually, I've just remembered two, two different jokes. Favourite joke... Favorite joke uh, is one about, and it's a, it, it fits perfectly with what we were saying about taking an idea and putting it in sort of a different context of uh, just like any joke, but about being on a date with a girl and she did the cherry stem trick where like she put a cherry stem, put it into her mouth, tied it into a knot with her tongue, and I said, then she took things one step further. She got put a whole Kinder egg in her mouth, pulled out a fully assembled toy, <laughs> and I'm I, I, I that that's my favorite one to tell and say because it's never died. It's no, like that, that in the toughest of gigs that will always at least it's always gotten something and I don't really tell it a lot anymore and I think it's probably because I did it on TV and it's on it's on YouTube and stuff like that. and I sort of say I you know um uh I mean but the the joke of which I'm most proud um I think it's not a spoken joke as such but in my 2018 show having done a joke about um ceramic underwear uh, about 20 minutes into the show then at the end pulling a full dinner plate from the back of my trousers that had been stuffed down the back of my trousers for the whole show was that that was fun to do every day and was also just it was my favorite it was the thing I was most proud of because I think it elevated the show um but also because it it was just such a relief to take that plate out I cannot stress enough how having a full dinner plate um on your bum is so uncomfortable it's so uncomfortable and I would have to have my the belt on my jeans so tight to sort of hold it in place and every day i'd step onto the stage at patron it's just one step up just one physical step and that would always shift the plate down in my trousers and it would be like for fuck's sake i just couldn't hold it in place and i'd have to be so careful about doing the show because it was quite a high energy show i couldn't turn around too quickly or anything like because it would make the plate swing like from one it would sort of shift it around like when someone's dislocated a kneecap it was so painful but i'm most pr- i'm most proud of that joke because i was just like that's that i'm proud of a commitment there thanks glenn thank you thank you so much to glenn what a lovely episode that was thank you all you extras uh, if you're in the insiders club get stuck in and remember glenmorecomedy.com slash live to find out where you can see glenn um before and then after the end of the year so um that is that I had a a very funny chat. Did I even mention this last time I spoke to you? I had a very funny conversation with someone from my management, uh, which was a very confetti cannon chat and ended with them saying, oh, totally different subject. How are you getting on with your ADHD diagnosis? Um, And uh, I feel like I'm in that frothy sort of a mood yesterday. My wife yesterday, today I mean, and my wife yesterday told me that 
I was, I was sort of prancing around the kitchen singing and carrying on with my son and she said you're quite hyper today aren't you and I stopped and was like me <laughs> and then had to admit yeah 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 I think you're right yeah well spotted so um there will be a, a fairly hyperactive post amble at you in a second but for now thank you to Glenn thanks to Nathan for producing the show thank you to you for listening to it and recommending it to your friends <laughs> recommending it to your friend you the listener thanks to you the individual listener for recommending it to your one friend um and uh uh thanks to rob smarton for the music and moz for the logging and all of that stuff besides um that is it for now who's coming out next week i should know this Grace Petrie's already had... Oh, it's Esther Benito. Fantastic. Esther Benito. And I've also got two absolute zingers, uh, which are as yet unrecorded, but in the diary, or very nearly in the diary. So lots more great stuff. Um, Comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Also, do me a favour. Did you hear a little, tiny little 15-second ad at the beginning of this? Comedianscomedian.com slash unmissable to uh, let me know of moments from the podcast uh, archive that you regard as big a big deal that were I to write a hypothetical book that I don't promise to write. But I'm 10,000 words in, but I don't, no promises. Um, then it, it, were I to write that book and you were to read through it and go, God, he didn't even mention that thing that Sarah Pascoe said nine years ago. Any things like that, jump in there and you'd basically be doing me a solid because I can't keep 10 years worth of hundreds of hours of podcasting in my head at one go. But if you think there's a thing and you're like, no, that was a real good bit, then let me know. Thank you. Bye for now. I'll post amble at you should you choose to hang around. See you soon. So while I while I've got you, why don't we just look at that uh, comedianscomedian.com slash unmissable thing? We've got some great suggestions in here. Thank you, Matt. Yes, good point. Thank you, uh, Sheila. Um, that oh wow yeah 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 uh, oh wow that's loads that's really long perfect thank you and thank you Elliot that one about the recent Lauren Patterson episode good point yes so there's a few in there um keep them coming if you wouldn't mind because it's uh, very helpful I don't think I can outsource the entire process to you unless any of you would like I tell you what if and I'm addressing the multiple listener here which as you know you must never do um, but if you could all write an individual sentence that is sort of cogent and uh, apposite, whatever those words mean, then uh, email them to me. I'll put them in random order by picking them out of a jar and we'll call that the book. <laughs> I mean, I think there comes to a... I think you basically come to a realisation very early on that you just need to write the fucking book and nothing can be optimised apart from sitting down and chunking it out. So that's what I'm doing now. It's driving me mad, as you can hear, but at least I've decided I'm going to do this between now and Christmas and not worry about writing jokes, apart from on a Tuesday night when I suddenly start panicking I've got to come up with a new 10 for uh, for Chops Comedy Club in Bristol on North Street at Friendly Records. You're welcome any Tuesday, but do do jump on whatever, chopscomedy.com to find out whether it's on. I mean, it's always on, but eventually, you know, it'll be like Christmas. So what I'm saying is I'm trying to legislate for the fact that I've made it open. Hey, come in any Tuesday, apart from the ones it's not on, but most of them it is. So other than that, I'm just going to get on with it really oh god it's this is it, i just have to sit down and take my own advice is there anything more painful than having to listen to and take your own advice no will that do i mean even by my very low standards that is all that is whiffle bye for now <laughs> what
as if, as if I can somehow suddenly dignify it by calmly saying bye for now at the end of some absolute bullshit. Nonetheless, I haven't got any more time, have I? So, um, anything else to talk about? Why don't I... Here's Here we go. I've, um... I've got it in front of me now. This is... I don't know what the title is yet. It's got a good couple of titles. Should I get chunks from this and put it on something or is that creativity by committee should i should i regard some of these instead of thinking about writing a book should i say it's easy mate just write a hundred blog posts that doesn't seem easier does it um but i could put them on linkedin or i could put them in the comcom group or on the slack workspace for um for, for your insiders i could put them there which which would be good but would it be good? maybe i should get more of it done and then do that but is that a good idea because if the whole experience of my wonderful infinite sofa taught me anything, it's that there can be such a thing as too much collaboration. <laughs> so maybe I should just get on with it. Stop trying to do... It's just procrastination, isn't it? That is what I'm doing now is procrastination. This post should have ended five minutes ago. Apologies. Speak to you soon.